0: I remember when I was in Rome and I was there during the days of the death of John Paul II and shortly before John Paul II died the Sunday Easter Sunday before he died he wanted to give a blessing from his window as usual and it was one of the most moving moments ever because he tried to give the blessing and he couldn't even pronounce the words And for all of us who were there, it was historic, it was beautiful, it was saddening, but at the same time full of great hope. And when you were there, you arrived to St. Peter's Square, which is its kind of oblong circle, and as we know it has the famous Colonnade, and the entire plaza, the circle was full of people. Outside, in the spaces, in between the columns, it looked like spokes of a wheel. You saw lines of people coming out, uh, emanating out of St. Peter's Square, like these spokes on a wheel, just so they could catch the smallest view of the window of Pope John Paul II. And what was happening? Everybody knew the Pope was going to die soon everybody knew this may be the last chance, the last time that they ever hear anything from the mouth of Pope John Paul II. And when a person that we love is going to die, we want to be close to them. We want to catch those last words. We want to catch that message that summarizes everything that that beloved person has lived for and done in their lives. And in the life of Christ, it's no different. Christ left us seven last words, or if you want seven last statements, seven last expressions that he wanted to give us. And like any dying person, when a person is dying, they tend to open up their hearts. They tend to say things and reveal an intimacy that maybe they wouldn't ordinarily reveal in their lives, except maybe just to very special people and special moments. And they let us catch a glimpse into what is most important in their hearts. The last day of Jesus's life, he gives us seven different glimpses into what's going on in his heart, into what is most important in his heart. The first word, which I think, especially in the times of Jesus, would have been inconceivable was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's found in Luke chapter 23, verse 34. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. On the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus said a lot of beautiful things. One of the things that he said was to learn to forgive our enemies. He says, you've heard it said, forgive your, your neighbor, forgive your brother. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your heavenly Father. For he makes His sun rise on the good and the bad, and causes his rain to fall on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what recompense will you have? Do not tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brothers only, what is unusual about that? Do not pagans do the same? In, any, in the event that anybody was tempted to think that Jesus was just giving rhetoric, saying something poetic and beautiful, Christ in this moment let us know he meant it. Christ was undergoing at this moment the most excruciating death that the Romans knew how to give a person. He was suffering the most agonizing pains practically that a human body can suffer. In fact, in Jesus's case, he was suffering a passion that none of us will be able to truly understand. It is said that when people were crucified, the agony was so great, the despair and the anguish was so great, that it was not uncommon that they would curse God, they would curse the day of their birth, they would curse their mothers for giving birth to them, And historians actually record cases where the blasphemies and the cursing and everything coming out of their mouths was so bad that the Roman guards would have to climb up on a ladder and cut out their tongues. We read that when Jesus was crucified, there were two criminals with him. They were blaspheming, mocking. Jesus, in this moment, what was he doing? He was praying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He didn't only forgive, though. He was making an excuse. He says, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Now, the thing I would like to do is ask you a question. Is it true? Is it true they didn't know what they were doing? They knew they were crucifying an innocent man. It's a dilemma. It's a dilemma because if you read John chapter 8, verses 28, Jesus says something. He says, when you lift up the Son of Man, you will realize that I am. Jesus tells them, when you crucify me, in that moment you're going to know who I am. You're going to realize. So is Jesus contradicting himself? Jesus says they're going to know, and then in this moment he says, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. How is it possible? Well, and again, we see in Acts chapter 3, verse 17, he says again, Or St. Peter says when he's talking to the crowds, I know, brothers, that you acted out of ignorance just as your leaders did. So we've got this contradiction. So what's going on here? How can we reconcile this? Well, in the Bible, there is an intimate relationship between knowledge, belief, and love. In the Bible, you can't really know somebody unless there's union. For example, when Genesis says that Adam knew Eve and then they begot children, obviously he knew who she was. It wasn't just like he he met her, he obviously knew her. They talked about it, they were in the garden together. But there's a special kind of a knowledge that comes with intimacy. We can't truly believe until we accept. For example, the devil knows that Jesus is God. The devil knows that God is God, but he doesn't have faith, because he doesn't accept. So there's this this link between intimacy and love and knowledge, between acceptance and belief. In the case of the scribes and Pharisees, what's going on? They saw the crucifixion. They saw the prophecies being fulfilled before their very eyes, and in case they missed something, Jesus was continually reminding them, continually saying things that were coming straight out of the Psalms and out of the prophecies. So they knew what was happening, but they didn't accept that this man could be the Messiah. And because they didn't accept, they couldn't really grasp that Jesus was God being crucified. So what is the relevance to you and to me? Well, Christ gives an unbelievable testimony of pardon to his enemies. And because of Jesus, because of this testimony, there have been generations of martyrs who have given their lives praying for their persecutors. From the very beginning of the church until the days of today, people dying for their faith And not calling down curses on their persecutors, but praying, God, forgive them. God, give them your grace. God, look upon them with mercy. Arnold of Schartz remarks that while Jesus was laboring to save the Jews, they were laboring to destroy themselves. But the love of the Son of Man had more power than the blindness of this ungrateful people. Probably you and I don't consider that we really have a whole lot of real enemies, right? I don't know, maybe we do, but We can ask ourselves, so what are the cases in my family? Or in my workplace Where I find it hard to pardon What am I going to do about that? Am I willing to be the one Is gonna take that difficult step. The second word. Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Also taken from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, verse 43. And for this statement, it is good for us to read several verses together it's good for us to read all of Luke 23, verse 39-43, to 43. so four verses all together, in order to kind of give us some context. The Gospels show us that Jesus is practically alone. Almost all of his disciples, gone. All the people on Palm Sunday that praised him and acclaimed him, gone. Who is with Jesus? His mother, a handful of pious women, and one one of his priests, everybody else is gone. It wasn't enough for the bystanders, for the Romans, for the Jewish leaders, that Jesus was crucified. Jesus stood for something, and he stood for something that they wanted to destroy. He stood for a God who is not contained in a bunch of rules and regulations. He didn't, you and I, we like to erect, if you want, a God of the law. And why do we want to erect a God of the law? Because it's very easy, in a certain sense, If there's a God that is contained in a set of rules, then all we have to do in order to be righteous is to fulfill the law. And we don't necessarily have to really change our hearts. Now, I'm not saying rules are unimportant. They are important. But rules have a purpose. That purpose is not just to fulfill a rule. The purpose is to form our hearts. The God of Jesus is different. The God of Jesus is a God who reveals himself to be a good Samaritan, to be a father of mercies, a God who goes out in search of the lost sheep, a God who looks for sinners, a God who embraces people like Mary Magdalene, who doesn't see a possessed person and just say, he's lost, who doesn't see a Samaritan and say, he's condemned. This God of ours is somebody who looks with mercy and pity, especially on those of us who are most in need, and wants to reach out and touch us. At the crucifixion, it's interesting. Everybody was focused on Jesus. There were three people crucified. Nobody could care less about the two thieves. There's one over here and one over on the other side. Nobody cared about them. Nobody focused on them. Nobody even spoke to them. Even the thieves focused on Jesus, the one in the middle. Why? Well, because to the Romans, Jesus was a threat. Why was he a threat? Romans considered him to be a threat because they viewed the world in terms of power. Politics. And they could not grasp, they wouldn't, they didn't have space in their hearts and in their minds for a God who showed mercy to weakness. To the Jewish authorities, they viewed the world in terms of legal righteousness, and they couldn't accept, accept a God who pardons iniquity, who pardons infidelity. The whole point of their existence was, we've, we must be righteous because we fulfill all these rules. And Christ frequently told them, no, you've lost the, the whole purpose, you've lost the meaning. To the thieves, Jesus was also. If you want a threat. Because they looked at the world in terms of profit and what they could gain, and Jesus placed his treasure in heaven and he taught humanity to place our treasure in heaven. And yet while everybody is attacking Jesus, everybody's criticizing him, even the two thieves are making fun of Jesus, something happens. One of these two thieves, from his agony on the cross, starts to notice The only people here that are acting with any kind of dignity are that man on the cross, Jesus, and his couple of followers. Everybody else is hurling insults, swearing, laughing, making jokes, being cruel. The only people that are showing dignity is Jesus and his followers. And the good thief recognizes You should not humanly even be capable of praying for people under these circumstances. What is it about this man? How is he capable of acting in the way that he's acting when he's undergoing such a cruel torture? And remember, the the other thieves, they didn't receive a scourging. They weren't crowned with thorns. They didn't receive all the other additional tortures that Jesus received. And here's Jesus praying. And he looked at him and he recognized the only way that this man can act in this way is if God is with him. He has to be the Messiah. And this is why the moment the miracle of grace takes place. And he opens up his heart and he allows God to bring about a transformation. And he, this man who recognized that Jesus who had to have been unjustly condemned, he who was a thief pulls off what many authors call his greatest theft, because in the hour of his death, he robbed heaven. The man who certainly didn't deserve to go to heaven, in the hour of his death, he turns to Jesus with mercy, says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus says, I swear to you, I promise, this very hour, you will be with me in paradise. And this man who spent his life robbing, spent his eternity having robbed heaven. What is the relevance to us? In the end, only the testimony of our lives are going to matter. Only the testimony of our actions are truly going to evangelize anybody. Jesus didn't convert this man because of the miracles he worked. It wasn't because he multiplied loaves or walked on water. Jesus brought about this man's conversion because of the way he used his own weakness, his state of human weakness, his being crucified. His testimony under these conditions are what opened up the door to this man's heart. Each one of us has opportunities to be weak. We don't like to use them a lot of times. We try to escape them. When God allows us to face our limitations, our difficulties, our weakness, how do I take advantage of them? How do I use them in order to bring Christ's kingdom to the world? The third word, woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother, from the Gospel of John chapter 19, verses 26 and 27. Why would Christ say these words? Some Bible commentators simply see Jesus, he's had his crucifixion, he sees his mother there. He wants to make sure she's taken care of. He says, John, you are my friend, watch over my mom. And that's all they see. But for Jesus to have done that would have been, at best, weird, and at worst, terribly insulting. Because the Blessed Virgin Mary, and Jesus, had relatives. And under the circumstances, the natural, the normal thing would have been, okay, your son dies, you are a widow, the extended family will one way or another take you in. To name some close relative, some sibling, somebody out there who's related. To say, take care of my mom. Jesus was totally breaching protocol. So what was he doing? Was he disowning his family? I think to understand this word, we have to go back to the Gospel of Matthew Chapter 12, verses 48 to 50. Jesus, uh, well, first of all, his mother and some of his relatives approach him when he is preaching and says, your mother and your brothers are here and they want to see you. Jesus says, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Anyone who does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. You see, for Jesus, his true family is not going to be so much a matter of biological lineage. To enter into the family of Christ, the family that He is making, is to enter into a relationship of faith, hope, and love. It is to become a community of believers gathered around the Father's will. It is to become a church. Jesus was building a church. And those of us who enter into this church through baptism, through God's grace, through this relationship of love with God. We become truly his brothers, his mothers, his parents, if you want, his relatives. We become united with Christ, we become family. At Golgotha, we also see, I think, a very realistic portrayal of the church. You see the priesthood is represented, there's St. John. You see the laity, In fact, there were more lay people there than there were priests. There was only one priest, there were several lay people there. You also see that accurate representation. You see the Blessed Virgin Mary as present. The family is at the heart of the church. In fact, the family is called the domestic church. At a time when most people cannot make it to a parish in order to go to Mass, to receive the sacraments, to go to confession, for example, how are we making our homes into churches? I think we can also ask ourselves this, how do I think of the church? How do I speak about the church when I'm talking to my friends or my family members? Do I look at the church as an institution, set of rules, as priests who tell us what to do, or do I look at the church as a family? The fourth word. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? It can seem scandalous that the Son of God would utter these words. Jesus, the Son of God, saying to God his Father, why have you abandoned me? How is this even possible? On the one hand, you can say it is a legitimate cry, a cry of anguish from a heart that has given everything and only feels rejection because he has been clothed with sin. He has taken on the weight of every sin in history, from the beginning of time until the end. And the Father, who doesn't reject the Son, but who looks upon the sin and rejects the sin, and the Son, who carries the burden of that sin, feels only the Father's rejection. But this is not only a cry of anguish. Jesus was also uttering a prayer. And it was a prayer that the scribes and the Pharisees would have recognized. Jesus was was reciting the opening words of Psalm 22, which is a very lengthy psalm. I'm not going to read all of it, but it's worth reading. If you want to pause the video now and read it, I would recommend you do so. If you want to read it immediately afterward, go to Psalm 22. The word, it begins, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why so far from my call for help, from my cries of anguish? My God, I call by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I have no relief. As you're reading this psalm, think of Jesus on the cross. Think of him directing these words to his Father. And remember that this psalm was written a thousand years before Jesus was crucified. I am a worm, not a man, scorned by men, despised by the people. All who see me mock me, they curl their lips and jeer, they shake their heads at me. He relied on the Lord. Let him deliver him. If he loves him, let him rescue him. The scribes said those exact words. They looked at him on the cross and said, If this is the Son of God, let him come down and save him. If he loves him. And when Jesus recites this psalm, the scribes and Pharisees would remember, We just said those words. What's going on here? They have pierced my hands, my feet. I can count all my bones, they stare at me and gloat, they divide my garments among them. Again, the Roman soldiers did that, they gambled for his garment. For my clothing they cast lots. The scripture records them doing that. And if you visit the Holy Land, you will go to the place, the exact spot where that would have taken place. But then, as the psalm progresses, we see something happening. It's not only a psalm of this tremendous anguish, because the language starts gradually to change. It says, He has not spurned or disdained the misery of this poor wretch. He did not turn away from me, but heard me when I cried out. I will offer praise in the great assembly. My vows I will fulfill before those who fear him. May your hearts enjoy life forever. The psalm becomes a psalm of hope. So Jesus, as he is praying this psalm, he just begins these introductory words and it describes everything he's undergoing. But it also turns into a prayer of hope that says, I trust in you, my Father. And through all of this, I know that you are going to bring about this great work of redemption. And I know that you are going to save me, even if it costs me my death, but you are going to bring me through this process. So this is not really a cry totally of despair. There is a sense of human despair because he feels the abandonment and the anguish, but in the end, it is a prayer of hope. It is a prayer of trust in the Father that he loves and a prayer of absolute availability to whatever the Father's will is. For you and me, what is the relevance of this word for us? What I think we can ask ourselves, have we grasped the blessing, the opportunities that God has for us right now, this Holy Week, this quarantine maybe, these circumstances. Maybe I'm sick right now, or maybe I'm taking care of somebody who's sick. Have I grasped the opportunity that God is giving me right now? to use this moment in union with Christ. Do I recognize that every cross that Christ allows me is always a gift? The fifth word is, I thirst. It is also taken from the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verse 28. And I think there's a question we can ask, is it not strange that given all the things that Jesus was undergoing he would have complained of thirst. He had been scourged. He had been crowned with thorns. He had been beaten with fists as well as with scourges. He would have been utterly exhausted. He had not slept. He had been hung by his wrists in a pit for an entire evening. He bore the anguish, the spiritual unbearable anguish of every sin in humanity upon his soul. He had nails driven through his wrists and through his feet. It's quite likely that one of his shoulders was dislocated. He was slowly suffocating, he was crowned with thorns. And he says, I'm thirsty. The words, I thirst, of course it was very thirsty, but there's much more to it than just the fact that he would have liked a glass of water. The words, I thirst, bring us to the why of the crucifixion. Jesus is dying for love. Jesus is dying to love, to be loved. He is dying for love. And we know that God is love. He is love itself. And he made us for one purpose, to love and to be loved. And Christ here, more than anything else, is thirsting for his love to be able to reach souls and thirsting for us to love him back. For his love to be known, to be trusted and reciprocated. For a person who loves, there is no greater torment than to love and to have that love go unrecognized. Than to love and to have the person that you love not love back. And not only to not love back, not to trust in your love. When I uh, used to live in Detroit, I knew a man, I knew a couple that adopted a young couple of twins from China. This is back in the late 90s. They adopted these twins when they were very young and they brought them into their house and they showered them with love, they brought them out of what was a horrific living state in that orphanage, and they did it out of pure love. And as these kids grow up, they realize our kids are incapable of trusting. They're incapable of loving back. They never received love in their most formative early years, and now they simply cannot trust And what an incredible heartache it was to that couple to know that no matter what we do, no matter how much we want them to understand that we love them simply for who they are, that those two twins were incapable of believing, incapable of acknowledging the love of the parents. There is no greater love for a person who loves another than to love them and not to be loved back, To love them and not to be trusted. Christ looks at us from the cross. Christ loves us from the cross. And what he is thirsting for is for his love to be acknowledged. He's thirsting for a relationship with people who are going to say, Lord, your passion was not in vain. I want you to come into my life. When the missionaries of charity build a chapel, they always have the words there, right next to the crucifix, I thirst. Because Mother Teresa's original inspiration was that. Christ telling her, I thirst for souls. I thirst for somebody to bring my love into those dark holes. Said, come be my light to bring my love into the lives of people who don't think that they're worth anything. People who don't trust in love. People who have never been loved before. The sixth word. It is from John chapter 19, verse 30. It is finished. This word is, forms a continuum with the third and the fifth word. So three, five, and six are all a continuum. If you read in the gospel of John, it goes like this. Jesus says to his disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. After this, aware that everything was now finished, In order that the scripture might be fulfilled, Jesus said, I thirst. There was a vessel filled with common wine, so they put a a sponge soaked in wine on a sprig of hyssop and put it to his mouth. When Jesus had taken the wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, gave up his spirit. I say these form a continuum because Jesus was performing a liturgy. There are gospel scholars that say, if you read the Last Supper, uh, it was a Passover supper. And in the Passover, there were four cups of wine that were supposed to be drunk. But in the gospel account, Jesus only arrives to the third cup. And then he says, get up, let us leave. He goes to the Garden of Olives and it seems like he leaves the Passover supper unfinished. He begins his passion, all the things that happened afterward, he sweats blood. He's betrayed. He's arrested. He's judged. He's beaten. He's waved the cross, everything until his crucifixion. And when he's on the cross, John goes to great lengths. He says, He gives us a mother. He already has chosen his priests. He is working this work of redemption. He asks, He says, I am thirsty. They give him wine on a sponge. A lot of gospel scholars say, That is the fourth cup. And with the fourth cup of the Passover, the Passover liturgy is being fulfilled. And at this moment, Jesus says, it is finished. Jesus, for him, the only thing that really mattered was to do the will of the Father. And no matter what, he was going to finish it down to the last iota. What does that mean for us? Well. When we look at the world, look at a newspaper. Does it seem like Jesus' work is finished? Does it seem like the kingdom is built? When we turn on the news and we see there's terrorism, there are rapes, there are murders, there's theft, does it look like Jesus' work is finished? So why why would he say such a thing? Well, the building of the kingdom is far from finished. But what Jesus has done is won the grace for you and for me to be his instruments. Now Jesus is saying, I have done everything that I need to do. You be my hands. You be my feet. You be my tongues. You be the instruments that are going to go out into the world and bring my love to the world and build my kingdom in the world. And this is something that each one of us has to question ourselves. We don't need always to do extraordinary things. And we don't need to spend the entire day in the chapel. But in my ordinary life, my place of work, in my family, with my friends, the way that I use social media, am I building the kingdom? Am I building Christ's kingdom? The seventh word, Father, into your hands, I commend my spirit from the gospel of Luke, chapter 23, verse 46. To me, these are personally perhaps the most moving words in the entire Bible. Think about what's going on. Think about the entire passion Jesus has gone through. Not only has he been betrayed by a friend, not only did he was he under such stress that he sweat blood, he was arrested, he was beaten, he was crowned with thorns, he was scourged. He was condemned by the religious leaders that were supposed to represent him, that were supposed to represent his father to the people. The the very men that were supposed to bring people closer to God were betraying Him. His apostles had all left. He only had a very small group of people, St. John the Apostle, the only one of the apostles that was there, his mother and a few women. Jesus, and not only this, we know He was being tormented constantly by devils. In In the spiritual realm, there is no doubt, just as you and I, are frequently tempted, just as Satan is frequently in our lives trying to beat us down, trying to depress us, trying to keep us by any means possible from doing God's will, how much more when he saw Jesus on the cross? How much more was Jesus suffering the direct demonic attack? Jesus would have looked out at history and seen how many people am I going to suffer for and it's going to mean nothing. How much spiritual weight feeling the burden of every single sin that has ever existed in human history. From the time of Adam, through Auschwitz, through Mao Zedong, through today's generations, with pornography, with abortion, with all the evils, all the crimes in history, he felt responsible for each one of these. And in that human heart that was made for the most intimate love of God, the most intimate union with God, With all of his heart, he was longing for his father, and at the same time, he was feeling the rejection of the father because of the rejection of the sin that Jesus bore, that he carried. All of this was happening at the same time, and Jesus is able to say, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. How is that even possible? The only way that when we are suffering the only way when it seems like everything in life is militating against us that we can remain faithful is when we are men and women who pray. Jesus was a man of perpetual prayer. In fact, we could say his entire life was prayer. Only when we are men and women who pray will we find the strength that comes from God to be able to trust in him no matter what. And I think Perhaps this is the best way to wrap up our reflections. We live in a world where there are a lot of things going on. Some of us have lost our jobs. Some of us have lost loved ones. Some of us are feeling sick ourselves. Some of us are dealing with great uncertainty. We don't know what the future brings right now. But what we do know is this. No matter what happens, we have a Provident Father. And Christ, who went through far more than any of us will ever go through, he was able, in the last moments of his life, to say, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. When the cross is heavy in our lives, when we are tired, when we don't know what is going to happen, we don't understand what's happening in our lives, we can turn to Christ. We can look into his eyes, we can hear his words, we can imitate him and say, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.